If you could turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 24. <clears throat> the title of the message today is um, A Mark of Distinction. Mark of Distinction. By the way, I see, um, I know many of you, this has been a tough few weeks for some of you. Um, I see some of you sitting out there. And, and I, I saw Tony earlier. I think she's still in the back there. And, um, and I know the Mauricios and many people are grieving. And it's been a hard few weeks. And um, we've, we love you. Amen. Amen. So we love you guys, and, and remember to keep them in your prayers and, and send them your love. So Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 24. If you don't have your Bibles, you can um, turn your attention to the screens. Um, please, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. Um, don't rely on the screens. We want you to become familiar um, with the Word. So. But it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you, and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with these swarms of flies, and also the ground on which you stand will be filled with flies. But on that day, <clears throat> excuse me, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. For all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by these swarms of flies. Please uh, join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning um, for your word. It's powerful. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it transforms our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, that um, we would not examine it, Lord, but that it would examine us. Thank you so much, Lord, for this church and for your word. In Christ's name, amen. I used to work for um, the Department of Youth Services, DYS. Some of you may be familiar with DYS. Um, I worked for DYS for about four years while I was in seminary. Basically, DYS um, is a youth program um, that the state of Massachusetts runs um, for kids who have broken the law. They decide what their sentence will be and whatnot, and they have different facilities throughout the state. Um, so kids don't go to prison. They don't, obviously don't go to adult prison. Um, they, they're sent to group homes. Some of them are a little bigger. They, they look more like prisons, but most of them are group homes. They're houses. Um, with probably about 20 kids in them, and they're watched by adults and whatnot. So I used to work at one of these things. And it was a great job for me personally, because I was in seminary at the time, and I worked an overnight shift, so I could stay up all night and read my books and do my homework, and that was pretty much my job. So the Lord was really faithful to me at the time. When I began this job, though, um, we had three weeks of training um, in Sharon, Mass. And Sharon is a really large um, state prison. I don't know if any of you have seen this prison before. But it's enormous. It's massive. And um, there was one rule that we got um, when we came. I'm sure there were more rules, but this one kind of stuck out to me. But there was, so there was one rule that we got um, when we were going to Sharon for our training. It was pretty much a dress code. They said, don't wear jeans. Kind of an odd you know, request. Don't wear jeans. Wear a polo, wear khakis, just don't wear jeans. And the reason for that was that the inmates wore jeans. And it would be a really bad day if you wore jeans, okay? 
because the um, the corrections officer just might confuse you, and you don't want to be confused with it. You don't want to end up locked in a cell when you were just there for a donut, you know, like in a in a few instructions, right? You know, so um, someone the, the very first day of training when I went, someone didn't get the memo, <laughs> and that someone was me. <laughs> I showed up in jeans. I take I took about two steps from the van, and I see this corrections officer kind of racing up to me and says. Um, you can't come inside, you have to leave. And I'm like, what? What'd I do? I don't have drugs on me, you know, like, what's going on? Like, you're wearing jeans. I didn't get, I really, I didn't get the memo, I didn't know. Um, so I'm like, well, I have to get trained. I, I'm getting trained for this job. It's like, well, you got to go to a store and buy some pants, and then you can come back, and if you make it in time, we'll let you into to the training. So I raced down to TJ Maxx and buy some khakis, and I raced back and I made it in time. But um, the point is, that in life, um, the, the, the world that we live in, oftentimes we want to make distinctions, don't we? Um, we want to make distinctions between a corrections officer and an inmate. That's why they wear different clothes. Um, and all, uh, I, would, I would presume that many of you work at jobs where you have to wear a uniform. Maybe your boss has a white shirt and you have a blue shirt. When I worked at Sintas, um, all the, all the uh, factory workers, we all wore blue and the boss wore white. It was uh, to mark him out as the boss distinct from the rest of us. This is quite common in the world we live in, right? Um, basketball players, factory workers, Marines, there's some people in the military that um, tattoo their arm with the symbol of um, whatever branch of the military they're in. Um, and we make these distinguishing marks. Um, they do, we do this to distinguish us as unique from everyone else. Okay? This is what I belong to. This is the group that I belong to. Okay? Very common in the world that we live in, all over the world. Um, um, this, is, this happens. Well, in Scripture, we can see very clearly that God intentionally does this with his people all throughout redemption history. There's a mark that he puts on us to distinguish us from the world. He doesn't want us to just fit in and just be spies in the world that we live in and then we just end up in heaven one day. He wants to distinguish us as his people. And this is exactly what we see happening in Exodus chapter 8, <clears throat> plagues are being rained down from heaven. And the distinguishing mark of God's people was his people were protected in Goshen. And the Egyptians would see this and they would know that this people is distinct from us. They are different from us. And they would be asking a very important question. Why? Why are they distinct? Why are they being insulated from this plague? And we are being destroyed by this plague. How does God do this? Why does God do this? And this is what I really want to talk about um, this morning with you all. There's a clear distinction that God makes between the world and between us. And this is what I hope that becomes clear. I want to look at the first distinction that is clear in our text and in the surrounding text of Exodus. Um, the, the, our first point um, is found in Exodus 2. The reason why God makes a distinction between us and the world isn't found in our text, it's found in Exodus 2. It's in the surrounding context. Let me read for you. Um, chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. It says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, all the Bibles, I'm going to give you a big fancy word that I learned um, 
for $15,000 in seminary. Okay? I probably should have just bought the book, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like school. Um, but anyway, um, it's Christocentric. All the Bible is Christocentric. That means it's Christ-centered. Every single book of the Bible centers around this monumental figure, Jesus Christ. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation. In certain books, it might not be as obvious, it might not be as apparent as when you're reading, say, the Gospel of Matthew compared to Deuteronomy. You might not see Christ in it, but all the Bible centers around this magnificent figure. It's Christocentric. It centers around Christ and His work. The law, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy, lays the foundation for Christ. The history, which tells the story of the kings and whatnot, prepares the way for Christ. The poetry gives us an aspiration for Christ. The prophecies, such as Malachi and Ezekiel, expect or anticipate the coming of Christ. The Gospels manifest Christ. They reveal Christ to us in physical form. In, in the book of Acts, we have the propagation of Christ. That is the spread of the Christian message by the apostles. In the epistles, we have the interpretation and application of Christ. How do we apply this Christ to our lives? And finally, in Revelation, all things are consumed under this person, our Master, our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is centers around this person, Christ. In the law, as I said, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Exodus falls into that category. In the law, we see the foundation being laid for Christ. Let me explain to you a little bit what I mean so this makes sense. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have the creation of the world. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve were created, um, but they, they fall. They fall into sin. And they're separated from God, and death is sentenced on their lives. And there's a consequence to their sin. But in that consequence, in Genesis 3.15, God promises Eve that through her seed, a Redeemer will come. Genesis 3.15 promises. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It means that this is the first proto um, gospel, evangelium. It's the first time the gospel is preached in Scripture, or in time for that matter. Okay? The proto-evangelium. The, the gospel is preached, and God promises Eve that in her seed, Satan will be overcome. And this seed will be victorious over Satan. So there is a promised seed given to Eve that will be fulfilled. Now this is passed on through the line of Adam and Eve to specific people. First through Seth in Genesis 4.25, then through Shem um, in 9.26, not the third stooge. Um, is that, that's Shem. Yeah, okay. Shem in, in chapter 9, verse 26, and if you recall, it wasn't Ham, um, because Ham uh, uncovered his father's nakedness and a curse was pronounced on him, if you remember. Okay? This passed on through Shem, then through Abraham in 9.23, um, through Isaac in 26.3, through Jacob in 46.3, and then finally through Judah in 49.10. That's why Christ is called the lion from the tribe of... That's right. Okay. So God promises a seed, a redeemer, through the seed of the woman, and it's filtered down all the way through Judah, and as you continue to read the Old Testament, you'll see it being filtered even more down through King David. Okay? On King David's throne with the Messiah rule and reign forever and ever. Okay? <clears throat> In these promises, particularly with Abraham... What God promises is unpacked a bit. And we start to see more specifically what it is that God is promising. <clears throat> God will give not only a Messiah, but a promised land. He will send the people into Canaan, and then kings will arise, and through the, the lines of those kings, a Messiah will be born. But there's a problem in our text. There's a problem at the opening 
of the book of Exodus, chapter 2. We just read it. They're not in Canaan, and they're not free. They're in Egypt, and they're slaves. So there's a problem. Is God faithful to his word? Does what he say happen? You see, in the mind of Israel, there was a potential to call this into question. Because they had lived in bondage and in slavery for 400 years. So their circumstances weren't matching up with what God had spoken. And their groans rose to heaven. And you know, I would imagine sometimes in our lives, we question the veracity of God's word. Is God really there? Is he really listening to me? Doesn't he care about X, Y, and Z? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God, not some, all the promises of God, if you have a King James Version, it will say all of them are yea and amen. That is, they are yes and true. They have to happen. The first reason why God makes a distinction between us and the world is to show us in the world that He is faithful to His covenant, that He is faithful to His promises, that He will not go back on His word. He is immutable, unchangeable, faithful, and what He says must take place. You see in Revelation chapter 1, um, John is getting this amazing revelation about future things. And, and he says, these things, the angel says to him, these things must, in Greek, D-E-I, day, these things must take place. They're an absolute certainty because they issue forth from an unchanging, all-powerful, faithful God. So number one, when we go through trial, the reason why we are marked out as distinct is to bring attention to the marvelous faithfulness of God. That he's in control and that he's faithful. <clears throat> the second point I want to look at, we see um, very clearly in chapter 8, verses 22 through 23. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord. Now who is he talking to? Who is the you? Come on. No, not Israel. Pharaoh. Why does God want Pharaoh to know that he's the Lord? Why does God care about Egypt? And what they, why didn't he just in one plague demolish everybody and let Israel go into the promised land? The reason he did it was because he desired the salvation of the Egyptians. The reason we see the plagues raining down on Egypt was because he loved he loved Egypt. He loved the Pharaoh. He loved the Egyptian people. And if he saw the land, if, he knew that if the people of Israel saw the land of Goshen being protected from this wrath, that something made click in their head that maybe he's God and Pharaoh's not. He protected Israel in Goshen. This is very interesting. I want to explain to you a little bit about the land of Goshen. Pharaoh, by the way, when Moses approached Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he said, I don't know the Lord. I don't know you. Get out of here. Right? And then we have plague after plague after plague raining down on Egypt, and the Israelites are being protected in the land of Goshen. Okay? Now, the land of Goshen, as you can see, if you look up here to the screen, um, there we go. It's right there to my right. See the land of Goshen right there? It's a pretty big land. 
More than likely, they were in one of the surrounding towns or cities in the land of Goshen. Okay, the land of Goshen um, was that part of Egypt where Israel lived for her entire sojourn um, in Egypt. So when Joseph came to power in the land of Egypt, okay, and his brothers come back to live with him, long story short, they're sent to the land of Goshen. And for 400 years, the Israelites live in Goshen, grow in Goshen, and serve Pharaoh from Goshen. Goshen, and this is what I want to particularly emphasize about the land of Goshen. Um, before I do that, though, let me, let me help you understand a little bit about the Egyptians and about the Pharaoh. The Egyptians actually believed that Pharaoh, that the Pharaoh was the literal son of their son God. So they believed that the sun, like the big fireball in the sky, not S-O-N, they believed that the sun was God and that Pharaoh was his offspring. So they believed, the Egyptians believed, that they had divine privilege by virtue of their relationship to Pharaoh. So in other words, because we're Egyptian, we fall under divine protection because here is the incarnation of the sun god himself, Pharaoh. So they felt the superiority over all the rest of the people of the world. We're Egyptian. We have divine protection from the sun god himself. And all these other people in the world, all, you know, the Sumerians and the Phoenicians, and you name all these other people, they're less privileged because they're not Egyptian. But if they make our way, their way into our country because we're so blessed and so lucky to be Egyptian, then we'll let them live where? In Goshen. We will set apart the land of Goshen for the less fortunate, unprotected peoples of this world. This is what Goshen was for, the sojourners. Moses walks up to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go or the Lord will judge you. This is unthinkable, unthinkable in Pharaoh's mind. You know who you're talking to? I'm the Lord. I provide my protection. There is no other Lord. Every other Lord falls under my authority. You have no power. And what happens? The judgment of God falls on Egypt except in one place, Goshen. It should have been extremely obvious to the Egyptians and to the Pharaoh that something bigger was in the room than Pharaoh. That the God, the Lord, had just entered the room. Not Moses, please don't confuse me. But the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, the King of Kings, was revealing himself to a deceived people and showing them using their language. Because in their minds, protection from the elements meant God's divine favor, and that's what Israel was getting, and they weren't. It should have been a very loud and a very clear message that they were serving the wrong Lord. And God knew it. So he sent these plagues, he sent them, and they rained down on, on, on Egypt. And all of the plagues, by the way, almost all of them, you can see the same phrase. I'm going to send this judgment to you so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord your God in 6-7. In 7-5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, that you may know that I am the Lord, not Pharaoh, not the Son, not anything else but me. I'm the Lord. So why, why does God mark us as the saint church? He marks us as the saint so that the world will see something so peculiar, something so magnificent, that it has to be 
the only explanation is that they serve the real, the true, the living God. That's why God marks us off as distinct. That's why we're not just secret agents traveling through life, pretending we're just like everybody else, and then we end up in heaven one day. It's so that people who aren't believers, who aren't saved, can see this amazing supernatural event called the church and ask, how is this possible? Look at this land of Goshen that they live in. So what is the land of Goshen for us? How do we mark ourselves off as distinct? We're not certainly insulated from the trials of life. It's not that. How how are we marked off as distinct? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that the Holy Spirit of God is in us, sealing us. The people of God are marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Seems a bit abstract though, right? Can anyone anyone see the Holy Spirit in me right now? What does he look like? Is he fuzzy? (laughs) Is he a cloud? Like, what does that even mean? You can't see it. It's not as distinct as a mark, like, um, a mark that, that was the land of Goshen. Or in other places in Scripture, we see in Ezekiel chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 9, that God marks off His people with a mark on the head. So these are obvious physical things that we can see. So how is it that the church is marked off as distinct? Just saying that it's the Holy Spirit in us is kind of abstract. What does that mean? Because we can't see the Holy Spirit. At least you can see a mark on the head or notice people being saved in the land of Goshen. So what is it for us? What distinguishes the people of God in the church age that we live in in the New Testament? John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus gives us our answer. This is a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. You know, believing in Jesus doesn't distinguish us. Saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, so now people know. Because it's easy to believe in anything. Well, I mean, at least to say that you believe in anything, right? Really believing in Jesus requires a life change. We'll get into that in a moment. But it's really simple to say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in snakes and squirrels. So who cares? But what people see isn't our words, but the way that we live. So if the way that we live is just like them, and the love that we exchange is perverted, just like the rest of the world that we see, then what does it matter if you believe in Jesus or Buddha or anybody? You see, this is what James says. He says, your faith is dead, because you have no works. You see, faith makes us alive and gives us this supernatural, amazing love for each other and this capacity to forgive. The Holy Spirit inside us gives us this capacity to forgive. Unfortunately, we see Paul say in Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So we, as believers, the only thing that we have to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world that we live in is the way in which we exercise love for each other. And if we don't do this, friends, if we don't do this, They have no distinguishing mark to know that what we say is real and true. It's just like every other philosophy and religion out there. So let me ask you, let me ask myself a question this morning. How are we loving each other? Are we prone to callousness and an inability to forgive when offended? 
Are we easy and quick to offend? Well, they looked at me kind of funny today. I don't know what that meant. Right? Is that how we love each other? Just the same way everybody else does in the world? Or do we exercise the supernatural ability to have compassion and love for the body of Christ? Because listen, there is no reason my friends and my family will be convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel if I look like everybody else in the world. The distinguishing mark on the body of Christ, according to our Savior, is our ability to love each other. And if we can't do that, then we're just another group amongst many groups in the world that we live. So friends, are we easy to offend? Do we forgive hesitantly? I want to close with, um, I want to talk a little bit about two historical figures that you guys may have heard of. Uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Kind of popular in America, you know, so I figured I'd bring them up. <clears throat> John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, obviously during the Revolutionary War for Independence against England, um, they were all very tight. This, this group of founding fathers were very tight. They had a common goal and a common purpose. Well, when they won, they had to create a government now. And they all had different variations of why they fought this war. And they ended up creating parties. I was wondering where parties came from. That's where it came from, our founding fathers. And John Adams and Thomas Jefferson became bitter enemies. Um, they would conflict and dis- conflict with each other, excuse me, and disagree um, politically. They would send out um, these public smears against each other's character and political viewpoints. And they would write them personally. So this was an ugly game that they experienced. Once friends, now separated by their ideologies and a passion for what they believed in. And they began to attack each other and abuse each other publicly in front of the world's eye. I don't think I've ever seen that done um, in today's political world. But this is a very bizarre thing to happen, I think. But um, they did this to each other. At the end of their lives, um, they were in their late 80s, um, they began to reconcile. They began to pick up the shattered pieces of their friendship and apologize and make reconciliation. Well, during this unstable reconciliation, one of um, John Adams' younger followers um, posted in the newspaper an old, letter, an old letter that was a scathing report against Thomas Jefferson. And John Adams was so concerned, like, oh, we've made so many good steps to reconcile the friendship. And here this letter leaks out. And he's just very anxious about, um, will our friendship um, fall apart again because of this? Thomas Jefferson knows, um, knowing of the anxiety of John Adams, writes him. He says this in a short letter. He says, be assured, my dear sir, that I am incapable of receiving the slightest impression from the effort now made to plant thorns on the pillow of, pillow of age, worth and wisdom, and to sow tears be- between friends, who have been such for nearly half a century, Beseeching you then not to suffer your mind to be disquieted by this wicked attempt to poison its peace and praying you to throw it by. You see, here was a guy that had some thick skin at the end of his life that said, I will strive for love and I will work for love and I will pursue this man and we'll work out our differences and we'll work out our problems and we won't become enemies because I love this man. From two men, one definitely not a Christian, for learning this lesson 
about friendship and love. Adams, by the way, called this the best letter ever written. The best letter ever written. So, church, who are you not loving in the body of Christ? Who am I not loving in the body of Christ? And will the world see that and know that He is not Lord? So let's repent, let's love, let's love passionately and powerfully so that the world will know that He is Lord. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. It's powerful. It changes our lives. And I pray, Lord, that You would heal broken relationships, severed relationships, so that we can love radically and supernaturally. In Christ's name, amen.